Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Meaning of Health. This week, Courtney and I chat with Professor Marek Sverenstein from the Western University in Canada. Marek is an expert in pragmatic randomised trials and has worked in many different countries to educate researchers on the benefits of pragmatic trials and how best to conduct them. He recently delivered a workshop here in Perth and I was fortunate enough to attend and it was a really interesting few days. We had a great chat with Merrick in this episode and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome everybody to another episode of Meaning of Health. I'm Craig. And my name's Courtney. And we're very fortunate today to welcome Merrick Sverenstein from Canada via South Africa. Other way around. Uh, sorry, from yeah, South Africa via Canada. So welcome, Mary. It's great that you could be here. Right. Yeah. So you're Thanks at the. Thanks very much. You're at the Schulich Medicine and Dentistry Centre for Studies in Family Medicine at Western University. Is that right? Yep. London, Ontario. London, Ontario. The smaller London. <laughs> <laughs> Some say it's at the better London, but <laughs> that's to be determined. Um, so just to get started, would, would you mind just introducing um, what your title is and what your role is where you are right. at the moment? So I'm a professor of family medicine, although it's a really long time since I actually was clinically responsible for anybody's treatment. Um, I'm not registered as a primary care clinician at Family Doc in Canada. Uh, so although I'm a professor of family medicine, what it really is is professor of research in, fam- in a department of family medicine. And um, most of my work until a year ago was, uh, I was the director of the research units and there was a lot of, quite a lot of administrative work and leadership. But in the last year I've been freed up uh, after my five year term finished to do more research. So I'm back, uh, back on the research treadmill and focusing on um, developing a, a textbook in pragmatic trial design, which is what I'm going to spend most of next year preparing. Yeah, yeah and we're planning on having a, like an in-depth chat with you about the um, pr- pragmatic RCTs and RTs. Um, so with your career, so just mm-hmm. to step back a bit to your time in South Africa and then work our way through to where you are today, you did start out as a clinician, is that right? I did, very briefly, but it was as a clinician. So I trained as a general practitioner in South Africa at the time I trained, there wasn't a family medicine specialty or residency. Residency? Do you call them residencies? Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent a year or two working as a family doc in an outpatient department in a hospital and then later in a small private uh, family practice in Cape Town. Yeah, so why did you decide to leave that and go into research? Uh, Tough question. No, it's, it's, <laughs> good. it's a really good question because at the time it, I didn't quite realise what I was doing Um, and I also didn't realize that I was going to leave clinical medicine behind and I kind of regret I did do that so completely but in South Africa there were far more I mean there's a shortage of clinicians but there's a desperate there was at that time a little less severe now there was a desperate shortage of people to do research it was kind of a new area to do research on health services or research on public health or research on primary care and so um, I kind of slipped into it sideways almost Mm -hmm. and really found my spot in research Um, the idea of um, sort of initially started with uh, developing um, primary care delivery for very low-income communities by training lay health workers 
And then I met um, somebody who, a South African epidemiologist who's since moved to Sydney, and um, in conversation, he was asking me things like, well, you know, you've got this really interesting primary care training project, but how do you know it works? Which was a completely fatal question, because as soon as you realize that there's the possibility that what you're doing with, you know, all of your commitment and thousands of hours and immense amounts of reading and furrowed brows may not work. Mm. And so suddenly I realized, well, what I really need to know is if I'm doing this, it could be wasting people's time, it could be injuring people, it could be good. You have to evaluate. And so I immediately sort of slipped into a black hole uh, where I was attracted gravitationally by this idea of, well, how do you know something works or doesn't work? And how does it, how is it working? What is the mechanism? whether it's positive and it's negative effects. And so that somehow did it for me. And so essentially I sort of slipped off the, almost completely slipped off the primary care, slipped off the clinical medicine, the family practice into evaluation. Mm -hmm. And pretty much that's what I've done. Mm -hmm. I do regret that I ab abandoned primary care so completely as a clinician because I think staying in touch with the clinical area would have given me a, a better handhold on... on the work that I was doing, but it was really rewarding and a lot of fun and incredibly stimulating and amazing people. And yeah, it and seems really like you kind of found your, your curious area. I had yeah. completely <laughs> found the I had hooked. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah awesome. Hmm. Um, cool. Yeah, and then f so from there, you, you also got bitten by the research bug yeah. and your curiosity mm -hmm. got the better of you, which it does for most of us that I work think in so. research. Oh, yeah. I think so. Um, so how long after that was it that you left South Africa and, and ended up elsewhere? Uh, so I started doing this uh, community project development when I was in about second or third year of a six-year medical school, So, um, which I can't even remember what year that would be. And I switched almost 100% into research within three or four years. Um, and then about, that would take me to, let me just think, probably need to switch this off while I do some arithmetic. <laughs> so I graduated in 1980, is that right? 83, and 84 and 85, I but that was, I mean, those were amazing times. I mean, this was in the time during which the, uh, the we had our first democratic election. And mm. it, these were amazing times. Nelson Mandela came in. Yeah, 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 that's right. And so I stayed from, so that happened in, he was released in 1990, and we had our first election in 94. Mm -hmm. And then I stayed another eight or nine years and then left. And what, what changes, just you know, of interest, what changes did you see in South Africa during that time? Well, an, an explicit commitment to providing primary care everywhere and to everyone and with some equity. Uh, massive investments in building, training, um, not as much evaluation effort as I would have liked to see, <laughs> um, but a real commitment to try and do something to remedy the apartheid yes. disparities. And what, what's your view on South Africa now, having spent some time out of South Africa? Right. Well, I still go regularly 
So I'm, I'm probably visit there once a year, and until a year or two ago, I was actually actively involved in a number of projects. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was an optimist then and an optimist through the states of emergency, and I'm still an optimist. Mm -hmm. So I think you know, they're amazing people and doing amazing things. Yeah. So That's good. Very resilient, aren't they? Mm. Well, you know, you can win the World Cup against England, but they have some <laughs> That's resilience. right, you do. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, yeah. And so you've, you've moved into research, and from what I understand, you now do quite a bit of training in that for people as well in different places around the world you've been involved in running courses yeah so many of the states the US Canada here in Australia at the moment uh, quite a lot in South Africa some in Sweden yeah and some in the UK yeah okay and, and is your current role is it is there a teaching component to that at your institution or yeah so some it? of the courses that I do for example I am working with people at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden um, <clears throat> I prepared an online course, a MOOC, a massive open online course, and I used that MOOC, which is available freely to any, for anyone to look at and read and use, as the basis for a six-week um, program in designing pragmatic trials. And I teach that simultaneously to a group in Sweden and a group at my own university you know, every year or two. Yeah. So there's a kind of a virtual class, a virtual international class able to chat mm -hmm. across time zones and and you're doing a fairly intensive kind of version of that course here in perth is that right exactly yeah okay yeah which i'm fortunate enough to attend so well I'll judge the fortunate when you're done <laughs> <laughs> maybe it'll just sow confusion <laughs> well, you so I think that, that, that won't be your fault. <laughs> uh, no, no, you take responsibility for the consequences, not just the intentions. I think that's a really good lead-in, though, um, because your course is in pragmatic trials. So yeah. what exactly is a pragmatic trial, if I can say the words properly? But... Yeah, no, that's, that's good. Yeah. Um, so it's probably best to start with what is a randomized trial yes. first. So what is a randomized trial? So a randomized trial is an evaluation of a couple or more interventions in comparison with each other. And you achieve it by setting up as many groups as you have interventions using randomization so that the groups are similar. You run each group through one of those interventions and you compare the results. So because of the randomization, the groups tend to be highly comparable similar in both the things we sort of obviously think about, you know, are they the same average age, are they the same mix of, of uh, sex and gender and socioeconomic status. And randomization pretty much uh, forces or strongly creates a pressure for those things to be equal. And when all of those things are equal, plus the unknown things that predict the outcome or influence the outcome, when all of those things, known and unknown, are equalized, then any difference between those two groups is as a result of the difference in the intervention, which is, boom, there's your evaluation. So that's a randomized trial. And we've been using those since uh, 1948. The first one was on tuberculosis. Um, <clears throat> but over time, we've begun to realize um, that even though those results are true and valid for the people in the trials, they're not necessarily applicable to the, the people we want to apply them to. So those results may be obtained on a very narrow, restricted, specific sample. And we've begun to narrow and restrict and make specific the people in the trials because of regulatory requirements. So these trials have increasingly been used not to just evaluate things in general, but to evaluate drugs for regulatory purposes, for licensing for sale. 
And so the agencies that evaluate those trials have, over the years, become more and more specific about what the trial should look like and who should be allowed in and who shouldn't, and uh, with an intense focus on controlling everything in a sort of idealized state. But the world's not like that. And so what pragmatic trials are is they have all of the advantages of the randomized trial, but also make special efforts to include both the people and the clinicians and the settings that you might find in the places you want to use those treatments once you've shown their work. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because when I hear randomized controlled trial, or you know, people refer to it as the gold standard of research, you get the image of lab coats and mm. you know people getting injected with a serum or very mm. fancy scientific instruments yeah and so yeah. you what i'm assuming some of the work that you've been involved with is really going outside of that setting and going somewhere where real people are living and they're living under real conditions that and that's that's exactly what the pragmatic trial is designed to help with but i mean we shouldn't only think of it as oh you know heading off to the far north or rural areas or low and middle income countries and poor people. And I mean, we also have made the mistake of designing unapplicable trials in tertiary hospitals for other tertiary hospitals, in hospital wards in rich countries for other hospital wards in that same and other rich countries. In fact, there are even examples of trials which were done in a particular set of hospitals. And then when the trial ended, it was quite clear that the results of the trial couldn't be applied to the other patients in the very hospital that took part in the trials because it had so narrowly selected the clinicians and patients mm. that the findings weren't relevant to the other patients and the other uh, clinicians mm. in that same institution. Mm. So this issue of applicability is, is very widespread. I mean, we shouldn't get the sense of, oh, it's up there, them, far away. It's, it's actually us. And the very places we're doing these trials need to be we uh, need to be thought about as the trial is designed so that you can include the sort of people who might use this, whichever is the better intervention hmm. um, after the trial is done. Yeah. And so just from the, the brief kind of bit of knowledge I've got on pragmatic trials, it's really about making sure that um, the treatment that's provided is provided in a way it would normally be provided um, by people who would normally provide it um, and to people in a setting that they are just going to be ordinarily living in, whether that's in a lower middle income country or a high income country. That's absolutely right. And the comparator, the control arm, should be similarly real world. So it should be tested, whatever is the intervention you compare, it might be nothing. In other words, there's a new intervention that's added on top of usual care, and it's just compared with usual care. So you could think of it as new intervention plus usual care versus nothing plus usual care. The usual care should be provided as usual by the people who as usually provide it. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. And um, it's this, so drug companies are the, the big kind of uh, conductors of clinic, randomized clinical trials traditionally is, is my sense of how they kind of It's been. an interesting question. I don't know in terms of numbers, okay. um, but yeah, they certainly are doing a lot of trials. Mm -hmm. I mean, a, a lot more trials and often a lot more important trials are done in the public sector um, where the question is often a new intervention, not necessarily a drug. Um, a high fraction of drug trials in the private industry world are about Me, me Too drugs. So, you know, there's a six cholesterol-lowering agents, I have number seven. Is my number seven agent better than 
number six or number five or some average of them. Okay. So I think, I mean, I've found that in terms of trials that matter, um, where, for example, what we're looking at is not so much drug A, drug B, new version of drug A versus drug B, but how we organize care, how we train people, how we encourage clinicians to adhere to evidence-based guidelines, how we encourage patients to have a holistic um, approach to their care, to, to engage in their care. I think there's just a wealth of questions that we can ask, which will never be of interest to drug companies, and mm -hmm. which are of, going to be of interest to researchers in universities and hospitals and mm. clinics. So with these pragmatic trials, are they still randomized? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Okay, so how, how would that go in like a real world setting? Well, it, is it exactly the same? Or? It's pretty much. I yeah, mean, okay. You can often randomize, you know, most in, sorry, in usual care, there's usually a flow of patients coming in who yeah. get diagnosed with the condition you're interested in. And there's often no reason why you shouldn't randomize them if you have two treatments whose relative benefit is unclear. So you might easily be able to randomize them in completely usual care. And if, if for some reason, like you don't, you think, okay, well, if, if patient number one is randomized to that treatment and patient number three and seven and two are randomized to some other treatment, they're going to talk and get confused. Well, you know, there are other designs that are possible, like cluster randomized trials where you might randomize the clinics or the clinicians to provide either this or that or some other treatment. Mm -hmm. So there are ways of integrating these randomized trials into usual care so that the flow of care in its normal isn't isn't much disturbed and so the result is then meaningful for those ordinary settings yeah and so just to um clarify with clustering you're talking about where there's several different services around the place and this entire service and all of their patients they get one type of intervention another one in another city for example that's part of the same trial will get you know a different one it wouldn't be <coughs> excuse me it wouldn't be one compared to another mm -hmm. So one clinic compared to another clinic, it would be you've identified maybe in a part of Western Australia, 36 different primary care clinics, say, or hospital wards or some other unit. It might be a public health unit in a small town. And you say, OK, well, there are 36 of these and there are two ways of doing this thing. Maybe it's two ways of persuading people to get immunized on time. Maybe it's two ways of providing health education for uh, weight loss or something else. Um, and so we'll spin a coin and randomize those 36 facilities to be encouraged to do A or the others B. Okay. So, and we'll compare the average across those. Yeah. yeah. So it's not just, it's not individuals, no, it's, it's the not, actual yeah, we, yeah. If you have two sites and you've picked the two and we said, well, you'd probably call that a controlled before after study, mm -hmm. non-randomized, yeah. definitely non-randomized. The randomization doesn't kick in with useful balancing leverage until it's kind of 30 or more right. units in the trial. Okay. And just from something that I heard you talking about earlier, um, so rather than working out why an intervention's working, you're more interested with a pragmatic trial as to the fact that it is working and the why is maybe a secondary kind exactly. of question. The primary um, question is, is this working better than this other thing or not? Um, which is interesting because a lot of randomised controlled trials are all about, as you call it, the mechanism as to why a particular thing works, what part of the body it's <coughs> acting on, or the brain or whatnot. So I think that's a really interesting distinction to make between pragmatic and, and less pragmatic. Or I think it's, it's a really interesting 
contrast and we're not very aware of the fact that we when we think of ourselves as scientists we kind of slip into a groove and the groove we slip into is how does this work but actually we may be responding to a need to answer why not why does it work but does it work mm. and so i think when we put that science hat on we kind of forget that we also have responsibilities for helping decision makers decide which intervention is better and the decision maker in this case could be anybody from a policy maker at the top of the health department or some particular hospital or down to a clinician who has to make decisions for their own group of patients down to one of those patients who has to decide well the clinician my doctor is offering me either this treatment or that treatment which one should i pick and so i think you know as scientists we have to remember that our scientific methods are accountable to society and in that sense we're obligated to try and help society use its resources to the optimum and we are one of those resources and i think the optimum use of our time is often not the question of why there are people there will always be people who are interested in that and that inventing new drugs and new technologies and it's fantastic but the decision on whether or not those should be widely implemented i think is for other kinds of scientists whose main interest is does this improve outcomes mm. more than that and that does have huge impact on on policy and things can do mm. it yeah, really absolutely. can it really can and, and that's really the distinction between <coughs> sort of public health and uh, health systems research mm. and then the more kind of clinical laboratory type developmental sort of research of people are de developing new drugs and whatnot uh, well you would you would expect i would expect there to be sort of overlap so i don't see why clinicians and clinical research shouldn't be intensely focused on does this treatment work better than that one if you look at the systematic reviews on the Cochrane library a very high fraction of them say can't decide not enough trials mm -hmm. not very yeah. well conducted does this work or not well we need more trials and so somebody's got to start providing those trials and designing them in ways where we can start checking the box mm -hmm. yes we know the answer to this question treatment a is better no further trials needed done move on to another intervention yeah but we'll only do that when we start turning out in large numbers these pragmatic trials so that people who are doing systematic reviews can assemble them and give more conclusive recommendations to decision makers yeah. Yeah. but that does bring out a flaw in research in general is that no one likes to do repeat trials because less likely to get published so well, that's well, my personal <coughs> view <laughs> so it's interesting think, but it's necessary i think that's it's getting easier to publish yeah. quality trials and as the quality of research evidence is becoming more of a focus with the research waste discussions by a lot of people around Cochrane and mm -hmm. uh, Unidas and others like that um i think that there's increasing space to replicate and do a randomized trial replicate randomized trials and do a review mm -hmm. and i think that if you look around you'll see that most of these reviews are filled with explanatory trials which are focused on mechanism often small and not very conclusive and so there's a real opening to do quite conclusive studies mm -hmm. and one thing that i think we forget is that a firm answer that there is no evidence of effectiveness and is a really useful thing oh absolutely yeah and we forget that and we think and some journals are prejudiced against what they call negative results 
but it's not a negative result. It's an extremely useful result. We can stop harming people with this worst drug. We can stop wasting money with it. We can stop wasting our attention and focus on putting energy into defining or designing interventions that might work and then testing them. So I think you know, there's merit in repeating these trials and we should try and do them better and better and more and more usefully. Hmm. And uh, so trials are conducted usually under an accepted sort of form and, you know, guided by a thing called the consort statement. Now, have you been involved with, with yeah, that? Yeah, with one of the consort statements. So the consort statement is the standards for reporting trials. There's another one called SPIRIT, which stands for Standardised Protocol Items for Randomised Trials. Standardised Protocol for random, anyway, mm -hmm. standardized protocols for randomized trials, which is about how you uh, di report your protocol, so how you indicate what you'll be doing in your in your study, and then consort is at the other end. That's making sure you explain the things that are needed for someone else to look at your paper and decide whether a they believe it to be true for those patients in the trial, mm -hmm. and b whether it might be useful for them in their circumstances. Is it applicable? So one at each end, spirit at the beginning and consort at the end. Okay. And is it during the during the period that a trial's be conducted, is there space for it to be informed by kind of feedback, you know, about how the trial's been conducted and whether it's going according to plan? Um, I know that they have to report to ethics committees and whatnot, but is there a place for peers to, to get involved? So increasingly we try and design trials with using committees which include all the relevant stakeholders, especially patients, but also the people who'll use the, that evidence in the end. So I think there's, there's an effort to make sure that these trials are more responsive to genuine needs. Um, but once the protocol is in place, there's a limited space for modifying it after that. You can, and there are designs called adaptive trial designs, that permits certain pre-planned um, dropping of arms, if, uh, in other words, dropping one of the interventions you're testing if it shows to be not effective. So you can write a protocol thinking forward about what might happen as the trial goes with plans for what, might, what you might do in each eventuality. Mm -hmm. So they're not completely rigid, but you have to be quite careful not to undermine the validity of the randomization and the, con and the allocation concealment, otherwise it becomes just uh, an impossible to decipher mess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, the groups get too mixed up. and yeah. yeah, and if you've thought about that in advance and you suspect that that is what will happen, that many, then you can ad address it at the beginning. For example, you may decide, yes, in the real world there will be failure of these two treatments and people may swap over from one to another. And so what I'm testing is not treatment A versus treatment B, but a plan to provide treatment A until it fails and then B against providing treatment B until it fails and then A. So you can modify the way you think of the question to accommodate some of the changes that, that reality may, mm. may force on your trial. So it seems so important for these trials to really think about exactly what question you're answering so your real-world data can actually truly answer that question. Otherwise, yeah, it mm. becomes a mess or where you might not actually be answering what you're trying to do. Um, mm. Yeah, so it's incredibly important for these, these guidelines to exist, I guess. Yeah, and th there are others coming. There are guidelines for describing uh, complicated interventions. There are guidelines for 
quality improvement intervention. So we're getting an increasing number of uh, bits of advice on how to do research mm. and arguably like uh, clinicians who are getting an increasing number of guidelines on how to provide evidence-based care. Um, you know, we're not necessarily adhering as well to them as we might. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And partly that's respo the, the responsibility of the people who are producing these guidelines, that there isn't a well-integrated single approach for giving all the advice anyone might ever need for the design of a particular study. You have to digest all of these bits separately, um, mm -hmm. which is, I'm aware, a problem. And how frequently do these guidelines or methods get updated? Uh, it varies. Like if if I look about at the the PRACI uh, guideline, which is um, the pragmatic explanatory summary, uh, which is a guide for designing trials that are going to be more focused on decision support, more pragmatic. Uh, we um, I think we published the first version of it in uh, two thousand and eight or nine, and the update in two thousand and fifteen. So that was every five, every six years. Mm -hmm. And my guess is it's three years now and I can begin to see things that we should probably um, tweak. So I could imagine in another three years we'll want to try and produce another uh, Precy 3, you know, another <laughs> update. Yeah. And is, is that something that you're involved in quite heavily? It's a significant part of what I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. Oh, we'll look forward to the number three then. Yeah. Well, don't hesitate to use number two in the media. And there was a lot of overlap between one and two. So we really are in incremental improvement mm -hmm. mode, yep. which I think makes sense. Um, so far, the idea itself holds and most of the elements of it are staying the same, but we're sort of tweaking bits as we see, as we get more experience and mm -hmm. as people give us more feedback. And, and do you get, like I was going to say, do you get a lot of feedback from people using these tools? You know, is there a bit of a feedback loop? Uh, there was a substantial feedback spontaneously, but when we moved to develop Precy 2, Kirsty Ludon, who was, whose PhD was the production of, whose PhD thesis was to produce Precy 2, um, she arranged and led a very uh, thorough validation and consultation and Delphi process with uh, dozens of people who had conducted randomized trials and used the Precy instrument. Mm. Do you reckon you'll try and do the same thing for the next version? Yeah, absolutely. We should try and do the same thing. Mm. And, and if I remember correctly, she's actually based up in Scotland, is that right? She's Scottish and based in Scotland yeah. at the moment, yeah. Yeah, okay. It's on everyone from everywhere. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, the network is really built around the Cochrane collaboration. Yeah. Many of the people who've been involved in this met mm. in some or other review group within the Cochrane collaboration. Oh, okay. Yeah. Ah. And the Cochrane was a you know, key moment in evidence-based medicine, and what it's done has been remarkable. Mm. Yeah, and it's, and continues. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Um, all right, so we might just move on to maybe some actual examples of work that you've been involved in that may or may not have been, uh, utilized pragmatic uh, randomized trials. So did you have any particular bit of research or project that you were interested in talking about? Um, I mean, there two, but unfortunately they both involve pragmatic trials. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. Okay. You haven't had enough of that yet. You might have had more than enough. Um, so we'll, we'll make do for now. I'm sure that'll be fine. <laughs> I'm afraid I have very narrow interests. <laughs> so um, the one set of 
trials that I did were trials of a knowledge translation or implementation intervention. And the particular intervention was um, the simple act of providing printed education materials to a clinician about what constituted evidence-based care for a particular problem in the hope that that would change their practice towards a more evidence-based model. And um, we did a series of, uh, well, now it's accumulated to about four, four or five huge trials in which we essentially randomized all of the family physicians in Ontario, thousands of them, 5,000 of them, to either receive or not receive these printed materials. And so, uh, so we had answers on do printed educational materials of a short form improve outcome? Do long form printed education materials improve? Do um, materials combined with patient and so on, any number of permutations? And the answer was no. <laughs> no, <laughs> none, none of these things, none of these things, which are very commonly done because they're so cheap. The idea was, well, you know, it's so cheap, let's just mm. do it. But in fact, they don't work. Mm. And so um, it looks like we haven't found the setting in which, any, which, in which printed education materials on their own will make a difference in how clinicians practice and shift them towards a more evidence-based practice. So that's, I think, it's a substantially useful piece of work because it tells us further investment in printed education materials should await a better understanding of what it might take for these materials to make a difference. Because all of the permutations we've tried, which are you know, the ones that experts think about and, and put together, haven't made an iota of difference. Mm -hmm. And so we should probably hold on that until we've got a better idea of what to do. Um, personally, I think printed education materials won't work. There won't be a form or a situation. Uh, it just looks so convincingly, repeatedly negative in its ability to shift practice that I think it probably won't. I think the human touch is needed, um, either that or some form of feedback, audit and feedback is another one that's being tested. Um, but it made sense to evaluate printed education materials because it was really easy to evaluate. We had these enormous databases and we could easily send printed education materials on important Canadian problems, Ontario problems, and then monitor on these administrative databases how the, the two groups responded in terms of what they prescribed or didn't prescribe. Mm -hmm. And also because it's so commonly used as well, so not Absolutely. even in public health, it's used in education, it's yeah. used in all sorts. So yeah. yeah, it's really interesting that that is a, a negative result mm. because it is used so much <laughs> well it's used because it's obvious because it's yeah. easy but it doesn't seem to work mm. so the question is whether i mean it's so cheap that providing these materials does no harm that i can see has minimal cost but might be distracting people from thinking about investments in more serious change practice changing methods mm -hmm. so i think that that's where the risk comes in of this endless flood of printed education materials. If you yeah. speak to most clinicians, they, they just bin them right. because they get so many of them. Hopefully they at least recycle them. But. You, <laughs> let's hope <laughs> get to the correct thing. Do you think they'd respond to other media, so other forms of maybe the same message, 
but you know, in a video or in a in an audio mm. recording or something. I mean, do, is there any indication at this stage whether that those things might be an alternative? I think there are an obvious alternative, but I don't think there's fantastic research evidence yet. I don't think it's been well evaluated, and so I, you know, having done these gigantic trials of one particular kind, I think it would be time for somebody else, preferably, to move on to using some other interventions. Mm. Simple, modern, easy to deliver, and I think the things you mentioned, like video, um, electronic communications, maybe you know, maybe somebody out there is going to be doing a great trial of uh, social media as a way of influencing clinical practice. It seems to influence everything else, <laughs> yeah. from, from elections to suicide rates, so why not clinical, evidence-based clinical well, practice. clinicians are people, right? I believe so. <laughs> I believe we are. Yeah. They need a good quote in order to influence them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and people do learn in different ways. And, I, you know, mm -hmm. I've been to workshops and, and yeah. whatnot, uh, you know, where I've been there for professional development. And I think people just like getting out of their usual their usual environment for a, for a day or two and, and talking to people they don't talk to every day. Um, and I, I know I still talk about things that I've remembered from sessions like that face-to-face -face sessions yeah well i mean the one example which in my work which agrees with that exactly is a um an, an what's called academic outreach where you send a trained uh what would you call them not trained enforcer but a trained influencer with some credibility either from their own training or where they come from which organization they represent or both and you send them out with training to clinicians to influence their practice in an overt way. So we, we've done this and many others have done it too. And it really does look as if there's some benefits and as if we can find quite a few examples, and I think the systematic reviews might be positive as well, uh, which suggests that at least under some circumstances it changes practice. Mm -hmm. But we've also, from audit and feedback, which now with electronic medical records can be done very simply and cheaply, there's evidence that that also produces benefit and now there's so many trials showing benefit from audit and feedback that the effort has shifted towards figuring out what kinds of feedback and under what circumstances. Yeah. So I think there's a range of media and delivery routes and uh, human, non-human, um, which, which I think are slowly being explored, mm. too slowly, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, your, your trial kind of gave the the basis to look at other pathways i guess by providing that negative result saying papers are no go it really suggests that we should be focusing on other things i mean as you say that i, I wonder whether whether the number of printed educational messages arriving in clinicians there might be too many <laughs> uh, whether they've dropped it all so yeah. what i don't know is whether our study on Implementation has been implemented. Let's <laughs> say <laughs> so there's, on average, I think a 17-year gap between fairly strong evidence mm -hmm. and, act and action, yeah. you know, for most research. So, so that was clinical research and life-saving clinical research. And whether I think, I don't know if that's an average or whether it represents a couple of key um, interventions and how long before, in the gap between when the evidence was clear that this clinical intervention worked and when it was widely used. I think it was more like a few. But that there's a gap, I think there's no doubt. Mm. I think there's no doubt. Yeah, interesting. But I think an equally important challenge now is de-implementation of things that mm. we show don't work mm -hmm. or that are not very cost-effective. Um, <clears throat> and I think that that's become an important 
yeah. challenge for implementers as well. And one of the areas I work in is is in justice involved populations, right? And the tough on crime approach is the reason why a lot of people end up in yeah. prison. Yeah. Often, uh, Three often, strikes in your arc. Yeah, the US version. Often with severe you, mental illness and <laughs> yeah, drug issues and whatnot. Yeah, um, and yeah, we know that that doesn't work, but we haven't de-implemented that yet. So, no. Yeah. I think um, there are states in the US and countries or provinces elsewhere that consciously try to move away from it. I don't know whether anyone's done it in the form of a randomised trial, but mm. I think it would be really interesting. That seems to be anecdotal at this stage. I know Texas brought in the justice reinvestment uh, scheme, and I know Vancouver and BC okay. did as well, and they've, I think they've shut some facilities as a result. But that was more of an economic need than mm. a, a crime policy need. Yeah. So they couldn't afford to keep incarcerating people indefinitely, so they started releasing non-violent and... and yeah. Those sort of offenders. Yeah, yeah in a non-randomised way. And, yeah. and there are certain things which you simply can't randomise. So it might be viewed in society as deeply unjust mm. to randomise access to early release if a prison is closing. So we hide the fact that we're making it selective by saying, well, this prison is going to close. Mm. And so the people who happen to be in the catchment area might be released early and then few years later we might do another one so we hide the injustices of what we do because it would be just too embarrassing to reveal those injustices of by randomizing and doing it explicitly but i think as societies we have to get much better at explicitly saying well we don't know that this works we're probably doing some harm by providing it if it doesn't work or if it, you know, it might be doing harm or cost mm. and so we should test these things mm. that's I think a really it, scary thing to admit I think as a, as a human <laughs> it's like oh I'm doing something wrong that might be harmful that's right. just want to hide right. it and yep. continue on so. I mean then which politician has won an election by saying yeah I don't know that this works but we're going to try it exactly so yeah. I think there's a real barrier uh, you know, in which this kind of pretend omnipotence and omniscience uh, it has to be maintained, and yeah. it's costing us dearly, I suspect, mm -hmm. both in harm and in benefit. The problem is as well that expectations get ramped up um, un unrealistically by people in politics, mm. for example, and so they set this really high bar for themselves where they tell everyone they've got all the answers, and then mm. they can't then they turn around. They can never around. find them. They're never yeah. there. <laughs> well, politicians will almost never promise a measurable outcome mm. difference. They'll promise an input difference, but not an outcome difference. And that's really interesting. Mm. I mean, um, Esther Duflo from the MIT Poverty Action Lab won this year's Nobel Prize in economics, along with two other colleagues, one of whom is her husband, I think. Um, and that randomized, that's a Nobel Prize. It's called the Swedish Reserve Bank Prize, but it's seen as the Nobel Prize for economics, was awarded because what she's been doing, what her team and uh, have been doing is randomized trials in poverty alleviation and development. Mm -hmm. And so they've done this succession of now hundreds of different randomized trials looking at subtle tweaks in how you provide development assistance or what you fund or what you don't fund, what you subsidize, what you don't subsidize, and systematically identified things that are effective in teacher training, in teacher um, motivation, things that are effective in transport things that are effective so hundreds of these things mm. and so i think it's possible in some circumstances to build in policy trials but in health it's proving quite difficult and i think part of the problem is because we think that everything we do has, life is at stake and so we dare not 
admit that we don't know. And yet, we're doing, I think, in all likelihood, we're missing opportunities and possibly doing a bit of harm and certainly wasting quite a lot of resources by not taking this tack of let's implement it in a randomized trial. Yeah. Yes, I think it's a key learning, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, being prepared to go out on a limb and measure mm. things. Yeah, measuring things is the real challenge for a lot of yes. people to get their head around. Well, that admission of I'm not omniscient or omnipotent, yeah. and I could be wrong. <laughs> but I think you know, attitudes to patients are changing, and I think that that spreads through clinical care. I mean, much more patient-oriented uh, communications. The physician is no longer viewed as... The, as the decision maker, it's the clinician in a collaboration with a patient who decides on, on the patient's best options. Mm -hmm. So I think you know, slowly you know, society and healthcare are developing, yeah. but it is quite slow. Yeah, we'd like it to be faster. Wouldn't we always? <laughs> you need the trials for the evidence. So. Yeah, we always. I just wanted to touch on a project that you sort of briefly mentioned before that was dealing with HIV in South Africa, oh, right. yeah. which is, I know is a, a big issue still in, in mm. um, Africa in particular. Um, yeah, so I was interested to hear about that work. Another randomised trial series, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you're referring to the series of work that was the practical approach to lung health was the first trial and uh, there were a number of others after that. So what these were were trials for, of training of nurses with a basic nursing training to become diagnosticians and prescribers and people who follow up patients have become the primary care, the front line of the primary care system in countries like South Africa, where there are relatively few physicians and they're not easily accessible in these kinds of areas, whereas nurses are uh, widely distributed in something like 20,000 different primary care facilities across the country and quite accessible for the most part. So this was a series of attractive, we developed um, mainly based at the University of Cape Town and led by uh, Dr. Laura Farrell, who still runs the Knowledge Translation Unit there and still works in this work, um, developed a, a series of training approaches and guidelines, algorithmic guidelines, to assist not physiologically trained nurses, but people who had a basic hospital training in providing um, supportive care, really, tra in training this group of people to do proper diagnosis and treatment with great success in very manageable doses and at quite low cost. And so we implemented this in the form of, of randomized trials where we would train clinicians, not train others in other clinics, and look at the, the quality of the diagnosis um, for patients who went through each kind of clinic and compare it with randomization. So ran again, pragmatic randomized trials. And so this series of studies showed that, for example, for tuberculosis care, we were able at very little cost and with um, surprisingly, uh, we were able to achieve surprisingly big impacts on quality and thus early diagnosis of tuberculosis and appropriate treatment. And then that was repeated for ever more complex sets of conditions. So now it covers almost all of primary care adult primary care and increasingly now we're moving on to children and adolescents and uh, pre-pregnancy care, pre-delivery pre care and so on. Mm -hmm. So in each case we've sort of developed an expansion of the guideline and then implemented it in the form of a randomized trial. 
mm-hmm. and that on every occasion it's never been worse than as good as the the physician based system that we compare it to so it's always been as good or better than and often more accessible mm-hmm. than physician based care which is of course less accessible and so it creates barriers and harm yeah so this has proved a great example of using randomized trials to test clinical policies clinical and clinical training policies as you implement them at scale and in each case that the sort of incrementally widened and deepened guideline has become the national guideline and so in South Africa now this is the national guideline and mm. um and this whole process has begun to spread to Brazil and Ethiopia and some other countries and you know if they're having similar success in those other countries well the brazilian trial is being analyzed as we speak I okay think. so i don't know the so we'll find out soon perhaps yeah <laughs> and so yeah my natural question as a researcher is why is this working what's the mechanism behind it yeah <laughs> and you can imagine the mechanism and what we've done is apply intensive amounts of qualitative research rather than quantitative research to try and answer the question of why does it work and what would people like done differently and how do people who receive this perceive it and it it's clear that clinicians feel empowered so nurse clinicians feel empowered to make a difference in their daily work and this is a massively motivating factor um the fear i think of not being able to do anything and the horrendous uh, frustration in watching people die of hiv in that case really motivates people to do this with enormous energy So I think the mechanism of action if we were to look at one revolves in some complicated way around empowerment, self-confidence, um reward from achieving clinical results under really difficult conditions and that's a motivation for everybody to kind of mm-hmm. pull in and 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 work harder than Yeah. And do you think that uh, patients often have better relationships with nurses i'm just thinking intuitively about some of the experiences i've had mm-hmm. um compared to a, a really experienced physician for mm-hmm. example who It may be scary yeah, yeah and they may they may not be as approachable or as willing to talk to you because their time short and, and what about hiv like yeah. that is a very um It's sensitive and stigmatized and mm-hmm. so it i wouldn't want to go as far as to say that it's a professional thing that nurses are and physicians aren't likely yeah, to be patients <laughs> <laughs> but but i think that it, what it is what this work has shown is that it's possible to improve the patient centeredness of any profession um whatever it is and even of lay health workers so that their communication takes into account what the patient is looking for and therefore establishes a much more supportive and continuous relationship and much greater willingness to learn from it from the clinician and vice versa clinician learning from the patient much better targeted advice much higher adherence much better outcomes mm. so see how much it came yeah so so just to go a bit broader now because you've got an international background and you've worked across different settings and what not is there anything that you've noticed over the years um or things that you think are the, are real challenges that we have going forward that you know we should be focusing on in terms of I guess public health and health services and the way health is provided because there's obviously areas of great need around the world where you know people don't get healthcare when they need it. Um so I'm just wondering if you had a view on that having been in some different places. And the world is a strange place because if you think about the last couple of decades 
there's really strong evidence that mortality for the poorest has gotten better, that in countries like China and even uh, other countries in, in, in Asia, you know, there have been massive improvements. Africa lags, but even in Africa in many countries, I think you're seeing improvements. But that's happening simultaneously with a massive increase in inequity. Even as the world gets richer, an ever higher proportion of it filters upwards. And so we've got this trickle down, and that little trickle of resources, plus people's sort of learnings and figuring out how to, is making things better. But wouldn't it be so much better if we could get a slightly more substantial trickle down of resources? Mm -hmm. So I think we're both doing better and have the potential to undermine our exact, the exact successes we've, we've reached, we've made over the last couple of decades. Mm. So, yeah, it's, the world's a complicated place and yeah. many of the things that determine the outcomes are not medical. They're certainly not medical and may not even be healthcare. And so I guess one has to keep a wide-angled view on where your best mm -hmm. sort of intervention might be. Yeah. There's so many things that you could focus on that could potentially help a, a patient or a person. It's, mm. It can be difficult to mm. choose, I guess. Yeah, prioritise. Yeah, you don't know. Yeah, and you don't have to do just one, I mean, you can do a little bit of several, yeah. one, a few things, you know, some social in, uh, effort, efforts on social change, efforts on healthcare change, efforts on mm. communication change, you can spread your, your efforts a little bit and do a little bit in more than one thing. Yeah. And uh, so I guess we're just probably towards the end of our chat here. Um, so what's next for you? What's Mary? your future? <laughs> more, more of the same, I suspect. So I'm yeah. working on a, a book, on a textbook essentially, a mixture of a printed book and an online version on design of pragmatic randomised trials. Okay. So I think that's the next big thing. That's what remains of this year and next year I hope to have a draft mm -hmm. working with other colleagues. Hopefully it'll be more successful than the... The <laughs> yes. negative result of the paper. Well, again, <laughs> hypocrite that I am, I'm not setting up to evaluate this. Ah, yes. <laughs> Other than in an observational fashion where we're seeing more and more people claiming that their trials are pragmatic, which I regard as a positive move mm -hmm. because people mean, it must mean that people think pragmatism is a good thing in trial design. But some of those trials are not actually very pragmatic, so perhaps we'll be able to ask you to do some observational work analysing the quality of the trials to see whether they not only claim pragmatism but are increasingly pragmatic in a real detailed way. Yeah. Oh, well, we'll look forward to seeing the fruits of your labour and probably... No, I hope it's going to be your labour. <laughs> yeah, OK. So we have to, we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> younger people have to take over. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's true. We've got to get more people into research. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks very much for your time today, Mary. Thank you. No, thanks. That was Excellent. fun. It's been a good chat. <laughs> yeah, and I uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Perth. Thank you. Yes, yeah. uh, it's beautiful weather, great city, mm -hmm. nice people. What more did you want? Great. Right. Good right. coffee. Good coffee. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Excellent. All right, thank you. Thank you. Bye for now. That was our conversation with Professor Merrick Sverenstein. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and as always, we would love to hear from you either via email at meaningofhealth@outlook.com or Twitter at healthmeanswhat. Uh, thank you to those listeners who have been in touch already, 
it's great to hear your feedback and suggestions for episodes that you would like to hear in future. Uh, and that's it for, for now. And we'll be back with another episode soon. Thank you very much for listening. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. Thank you.